Lord, I pray that as we come with hungry hearts that you would reward us, that these truths would live in our lives and help us through the weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a sit down. Uh, tonight's a little bit different. We start the book of Exodus, and as you came in, I think you were handed these. Is that right? All right, I'll tell you why you were handed these. I, I've been thinking about this, and sorry I've been negligent up to this point, but um, I've always wanted to have a notebook for Sunday nights. And what we're going to do is buy in bulk at the cheapest possible rate three-ring notebooks this size. And um, we're going to put a little graphic in them and pass the savings on to you, whatever it costs us to get them and produce them. We'll sell them in the bookstore. And then from time to time, we'll be putting in, we'll be handing out little pieces of paper with outlines, maps. Later on, we'll give you a, a structure of the tabernacle, uh, charts of uh, pay, uh, main characters and time charts and so forth. And you can just stick it in there. There'll be also plain paper where you can just write your notes on them and Keep it all in a three-ring binder. You won't lose it. You'll have eventually, hopefully, the whole Bible in that notebook uh, and notes and outlines in it. So I came up with an outline this week, and uh, next couple of weeks we'll have those notebooks, and you can just stick it in there and uh, keep it. Um, let's turn to Exodus chapter 1, if you haven't turned there already. I will never forget the first time I saw Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. And every time I approach the book of Exodus, that is what is firmly fixed in my mind, is Charlton Heston with that fake Hollywood gray hair coming to Pharaoh, Yule Brenner in the movie, and saying, let my people go. And Yul Brenner in that deep voice going, Moses, Moses, Moses. <laughs> and what an impact it made on me to see this man of God so strong, so confident in the Lord. Yet he didn't start out that way. In fact, he started out in Egypt as a man who is trained in the best schools that Egypt could provide. I have a lot of general kind of things that I want to cover tonight. Uh, we want to cover the first two chapters tonight. There are great themes that you will find in the book of Exodus. Themes that will lay a foundation for future themes that you read in the New Testament. Of course, first of all, this book is a story about redemption. Israel, at the point we pick up on it, 350 years after the book of Exodus, the scene that we, uh, book of Genesis, where Joseph is, uh, uh, died and so forth, about 350 years later, the children of Israel come now into a place where they are slaves to the Egyptians. And there is the need for a strong deliverance. And God, by a strong hand, shows himself strong and one of the great overall themes besides redemption is God's providence. I am so comforted that God is sovereign. And that is something that needs to be rekindled in our thinking in the modern day church. That God is not out of control. 
So often, one of the ploys of the devil is to get our sights fixed on his power to destroy rather than God's power to deliver. And when everybody's running around, oh, the devil this, the devil that, rather than seeing the sovereignty of God and the providence of God in human history. And we see, though there is a subjugation that takes place and a subjection of, as slaves in Egypt, that God is weaving things together from the very beginning when Moses is born, just a baby. We're going to see tonight how God providentially weaves his history. Providence comes from two words, pro, which is beforehand, and video, which is to see. It means to see in advance. And it means the working of God because he sees events before they happen. And because God has foreknowledge and he knows everything that's going to happen before it happens, he can weave history together. And it's sort of like weaving things supernaturally, naturally. Providence is different from the miraculous. The miraculous, which is also seen in this book, is where God intervenes supernaturally. He just sort of cuts into history. But providence is where God uses natural events and weaves them through so that his will would be done in the end. You're also going to see in the book of Exodus that it's a book of sacrifice. Chapter 12 will be a notable chapter. That's the Passover. A lamb is sacrificed for the people. It is something they're to keep every year. We will also see that sacrifice begins in this book and goes throughout the entire Bible. It never ends. A certain type of sacrifice ends when Jesus dies on the cross. And now we don't have to pay for our sins any longer. But sacrifice, as far as Israel is concerned, begins here and continues through their history. The priests are also sanctified by sacrifice. You will see that a lamb is killed and that blood is dipped with a finger and placed on the ear of the priest, the right ear, the right thumb, and the right toe, signifying a consecration of that man's best unto the Lord. So it's a story of redemption. It's a story of sacrifice. It's also a story of worship. As in the latter part of the book, we will get the dimensions of the tabernacle. And one would wonder why is so much given in the scripture, so much time and, and um how many pages are given to the tabernacle, chapter after chapter. More time is given to the tabernacle than to creation itself in the book of Genesis. And that's something that piques our attention and question as to why, because it forms a basis of worship and approach to God. And as we will see, forms a model of heavenly worship, as we'll compare that with the book of Hebrews. Also, it's a story of ethics and human behavior as given by God. Ten commandments will be given in the 20th chapter as Israel makes it to Mount Sinai. And after chapter 20, chapters 21 through 24 is a set of social laws where God is basically saying, okay folks, this is how you get along with other people. Here's some basic societal laws that by the way have formed the basis for common law of Western civilization. We have modeled many of our laws after the laws that are given in this book. And we'll pick up on that in those chapters. The office of a prophet emerges in the book of Exodus. 
Moses is seen not only as a deliverer, but as a prophet, God's mouthpiece to the nation. God wants to speak through the nation. He will raise up Moses to do that. Moses doesn't want the job. He says, use Aaron. He can do a much better job. But as a prophet, Moses becomes a type of Jesus Christ, who will be another prophet. In fact, listen to Moses' own words in another book of the law, Deuteronomy 18. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. Him you must listen to. Then also this book is a story about the priesthood. God raises up a group of people who will represent spiritually God to the people and the people before the Lord. And a priesthood develops that is very integral to the worship of Israel throughout their history. They need a representative. Now, we have a representative. We don't have a human priest. I grew up in a system, a Roman system of worship, that modeled very much the Old Testament priesthood of taking a man and letting that man represent me to the Lord. But in the New Testament, we see that the priesthood of Aaron and a human representation is out of the way now. That Jesus Christ is our great high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, which goes back to Genesis, rather than the order of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, a higher priesthood. Besides that, you are a priest. You're a holy priesthood. When I was young, my mom and dad said, we would love nothing more than to see you grow up to be a priest. I've given away what denomination I grew up in. Something very familiar in this part of the country, by the way. And uh, both of my older brothers went to seminary uh, in the Roman Catholic Church to become priests, and they went through the educational process, but they didn't get ordained. And then my other brother, Bob, he just was sort of a, a wild card, went off in his own direction. I was their last hope, that maybe you'll be a priest. And I often remind my parents now, your dream has come true. <laughs> For the Bible says that we are a holy priesthood unto the Lord to offer up spiritual sacrifices, Peter tells us. And so is every believer. A New Testament doctrine is the priesthood of all believers. You don't need a representative, a human representative anymore. You don't need to go through another man or woman to get to God. You can go directly to God because of Jesus Christ. That's the great thing about the cross. And the counterpart to Exodus would be the book of Hebrews, where Jesus Christ is painted as our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. And you can come any time to him. And he'll represent you before the Father. The ancient Jews regarded the first five books of Moses as the five scrolls. And their Greek term for it was the Pentateuch, meaning the five rolls or the five books of the law. Uh, it's also known as the Torah. And that is the first five books written by Moses. 
And what's great about Exodus is that he is sort of the main character. There are other main characters as seen on your outline in page two, but Moses is really uh, the premier character. I I should back up. God is really the main actor. He's the one who accomplishes the deliverance. He just uses Moses to do it. Even when Moses comes up with many excuses, God is determined to use this character. And I love the persistence of God in wanting to use us. Uh, The term Exodus... It's a Latin term, comes from the Greek word exodas, which simply means exit. Think of exodus as exit. When you see an exit sign, that's exactly what the name means. It means to go out of. Literally, it means in Greek, the marching of an army or a solemn procession. The Hebrews did not refer to it as exodus, but they would call the names of their books after the first few words in the first verse of the book. And uh, if you look in verse 1, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel. In Hebrew, there would be two words, We'ele she'emot, which means these are the names of. And so they would call the name of the book, We'ele she'emot. These are the names of. That's what they would call this book. We call it Exodus. As we study it, we want to zero in on a few things. Number one, the attributes of God. Every time you study a book of the Bible, look for the attributes of God. Look for the attributes of God like His holiness, His love, His care, His providence, His sovereignty. Look for the activities of God in any book. We're going to zero in on this. Thirdly, we're going to zero in on the types in Exodus that point to Jesus Christ. There are several types of Christ. And we know a type because they're spoken about in the New Testament books especially the book of Hebrews. And finally, we want to look at a personal application as we go through it. Now, why do we study the Old Testament? I'll tell you why I have to go through this, because I get asked this question a lot. One of the unique marks of this fellowship is that we just don't cover Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and a couple of Psalms. We study the whole Bible, every chapter of it. Well, I'll tell you why. We just figure God wrote it, God gave it to us for a specific reason, and that God meant what he said in the New Testament when he talked about the Old Testament, saying all of these things were written beforehand for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God wrote part of the scripture in Exodus. We should give ourselves and attend to this book. There are some parts of it that will be difficult. There are some parts of it that will sum up for you and not go through every little aspect of it, but just sort of sum it up and give you personal application. But still it was given for our admonition. In fact, many of the object lessons in Exodus are are used in the book of Hebrews as personal application for us. So this is the background for many of the lessons in the New Testament. When uh, I was going through college, there were several classes I didn't want to take, but I was told I had to. These were core classes. There were certain English classes I didn't want to take, certain math classes and science classes that I didn't want to take. And there were other classes that I wanted to take. But I am so thankful that the college didn't say, well, you know, just come in and create your own program. Just study whatever you'd like to, and we'll just slap a degree on you. That would be a poor education. We need all of the subjects of the scripture. And you're going to go through some of these books and think, that reminds me of that math class that I took. 
oh. Sort of like when you sit down to a meal and when you're younger especially, you start wanting to pick and choose. My son will sit down and go, oh, I like that hot dog, but I hate that broccoli. And I don't want to eat that, but I don't want that salad, but I sure like the whipped cream. But we need to eat a well-balanced meal. So our method has been to take Genesis and go through it, Matthew, go through it, go back to Exodus, go through it, go back to Mark, and just sort of do Old Testament, New Testament, hand in hand, and make it through uh, both of the Bible, uh, both of the Testaments simultaneously. My prayer is this. My prayer is that this fellowship, this church, will have a voracious appetite for the Word of God that just will not be satisfied. That you'll just want to take more in and more in and more in, even if you get spiritual indigestion. It's good to get spiritual indigestion and maybe even burp up a few scriptures throughout the week. The more of God's Word that you take in, the stronger your life will become. The more resources you will have to cope victoriously in life. And you'll be able to see how God fits it all together. Listen, the best commentary on the scripture is the Bible itself. People say, hey, what's the best commentary you can find? The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Comparing spiritual truths with spiritual truths. So my prayer is that you'll get an appetite for God's word. Now before we jump into chapter 1, I understand I'm taking a long time to do this introduction. I want to give you principles of how the children of Israel have and still do to this day interpret their history. Why am I doing this? Because a core of their history is found in this book. And you'll find that in the Psalms and in Nehemiah and even in the New Testament, the Jews always point back to Exodus as the core of their history. And there were principles with which they looked back through the lens of time and interpreted the events of their history. First is the principle of representation. The principle of representation, which simply means this. The Jews believe that all of Israel's generations, even the future, even future generations, share in historical events. You will hear Jews who are Orthodox to this day say, we were delivered from Egypt. Not just our forefathers, but we were delivered from Egypt. And they will represent that through the feasts that they keep to this day. Yom Kippur, New Year's, Sabbaths, and all of the feasts of Israel because of the representation. Second, that goes sort of hand in hand with that, is the principle of participation. Not only will the feasts take place, but the Jews must celebrate that, must take part in those feasts. And so Orthodox Jews will want to keep the feasts. In Jesus' time, even Jesus kept that principle of participation. He would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Go up to Jerusalem for many of the other feasts like tabernacles. Finally, thirdly, is the principle of enlargement. Now this is important to us. The principle of enlargement means this. Exodus is in small what world redemption is in large. There are types, and even Jews have seen that throughout their history. For instance, Pharaoh is in small what all of God's enemies are in large. The deliverance from Egypt in small 
is what deliverance from God's enemies are in large. Now, Christians take this a step further, and we have the precedent to do that in the New Testament. This is where types come in. I get asked this question a lot. What right do we have to say so-and-so is a type of Jesus Christ, or this feast is a type of Jesus Christ, a foreshadow? The precedence is given in the New Testament. A classic example is Passover, right? That lamb in chapter 12, the blood put on the lintels and doorposts, is in small what the cross of Jesus Christ is in large. And so Christ is called our Passover. He's also called another prophet like unto Moses, as we've already discovered. And so we see these types followed through in the New Testament. It says, these are the names, verse 1, of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. When Joseph came into Egypt, the kings that received him, the Pharaoh, when Joseph came in, were very different than these pharaohs. For those of you who are interested in the historical background, when Joseph came into Egypt, the kind of kings that were in ruler, rulership at the, that time were called Hiskos kings, Hiskos pharaohs. They were Semitic tribes. They were related in bloodline to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were not your standard Egyptian pharaohs. They had years before conquered Egypt because they were desert tribes who moved in, became pharaohs, and the native Egyptians hated those pharaohs and wanted to take them off the throne. That perhaps explains why the pharaoh took a liking to Joseph when he saw the wisdom of God in him. Because there was a relationship. He knew he could trust Joseph. He was Semitic. He was from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He felt safe with him that there wouldn't be an uprising with Joseph. Well, 350 years later, there arises a Pharaoh who did not know the significance of Joseph's wisdom and input in saving the land of Egypt. These Pharaohs were of the 18th dynasty. The Pharaoh mentioned about in verse 8 was probably Thumos III, followed when Mo see Moses leaves the land, and he will come back 40 years later, his son Amenhotep II, of the 18th dynasty of the pharaohs will be taking over for him. And he is the one who will contend now with Moses. Um, chapter 1 sets the stage for deliverance. Sets the stage for the need of a savior. They become oppressed as we read in the next few verses. He said to his people, look, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them. Lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us 
and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitham and Ramses. Every one of us, and I'm applying it spiritually now, has had a genesis. Every one of us has had a beginning. We've been born. Here we are in this world. But not every single person has had an exodus. We've had a spiritual birth, but not everyone has been delivered from bondage. And Egypt becomes a type of sin from which Jesus Christ delivers us from. The old life. And takes us through the wilderness and grows us up and gives us the new land, the land of Canaan. Every one of us, every human being, has been born physically. That's an obvious statement of fact. I realize that. But not every person has had an exodus. Only a Christian, a person who has given their lives to Jesus Christ, who's been born a second time and had Jesus Christ deliver them from sin into a new life, has had an exodus. Now that makes all the difference in eternity. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again the second time, the Greek word anothen, from above, a spiritual rebirth, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an old axiom that says, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. There is a spiritual birth as well as a physical birth. There is a spiritual death as well as a physical death. Now, every one of us who've been born will die unless the Lord comes back before we die and he comes back and raptures us all away or whatever. Apart from that, we will all die. The death rate has and is one per person. No one escapes it. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. We all die. But though we all die physically, not everyone has to die spiritually. Revelation calls the spiritual death the second death. That is ultimate and eternal separation from God, where there is no more chance. If you're born once only and you don't experience second birth, born again, you will die twice, physically and spiritually, for all of eternity. If you are born twice, born physically and born again spiritually by receiving Jesus Christ, you'll only die once. You'll die physically, but you'll never die spiritually. You'll be ultimately with the Lord forever. To be born again is the exodus for us, the deliverance from the old life, the deliverance from the clutches of Satan, where Jesus takes our life and takes us through the wilderness and puts us into that new land now and in heaven for eternity. You see, born again is not a type of Christianity, as I often hear it referred to. Uh, people look at born-again Christians like uh, they're a sect or a group. Well, you've got the Methodists and you've got the Presbyterians and, of course, you have the Baptists and the Pentecostals and there's the born-again Christians. They're another brand like vanilla, chocolate, swirl, strawberry. Not so. If you are not born again, you are not a Christian. Now, you might be a born-again Methodist, you might be a born-again Baptist, you might be a born-again Catholic. But if you are not born again, if you've never received Christ personally, then you are not a Christian. 
it is absolutely imperative that you have an exodus from the old life and you are born into the new life. So redemption is the theme of this book and uh, the first chapter sort of sets the stage. A strange twist develops now. The first twist is that the children of Israel have grown. There are more than 70 people at this point. In fact, it is believed that there are two and a half million Israelites in the land of Egypt at this time. From 70 to two and a half million, there are 600,000 males that get delivered, as we'll see in chapter 12 through chapter 15. So that would be roughly around two, two and a half million people that will leave in the Exodus. So it has really grown. That poses a threat to Thumos III, that pharaoh, because it was estimated that one out of every three people who lived in Egypt at this time were of foreign origin and warring tribes, Bedouin tribes, were moving in and out of that region and there was always the threat that somehow these people might overpopulate and take over. Now, in modern times, sort of a reverse of this has caused Israel some sort of disdain and un feeling of being uncomfortable because the Palestinians who have lived in Gaza and in the West Bank have decided the only way we'll ever be able to uh, get anywhere is to overpopulate. So let's have as many children as we possibly can and train them up in our ways and though we live in Gaza we'll just be so many people that we have to expand. That has been sort of uh, uh, their method for a number of years and Israel to try to counteract that of course, they believe in having many children as well, but also in bringing immigrants in from Russia and other parts of the world to settle in the West Bank and Gaza to sort of avert that. Of course, now there's a peace policy going. How far that will go remains to be seen. But this pharaoh is really leery that the children of Israel, who started out as 70 and now 2.5 million, could one day take over. And so, let's enslave them. Therefore he set taskmasters over them, verse 11, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, these aren't pyramids, as some have suggested, but since the pyramids were tombs and they were built long before this time, these were treasure cities where they would store food and arms for war. And they afflicted them. And it says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. In mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. The interesting twist is that the more they afflicted them, the more they grew. There's an interesting principle that still works today. The more you persecute a body of Christians, it won't hurt them. It'll only make them stronger. Did you know that? In the early church, the more outside forces of Judaism and the Roman Empire afflicted and persecuted the church, they grew and multiplied. We see that in almost every chapter of the book of Acts. Persecution came, the church multiplied. It's sort of like a fire. If you start a fire and the embers are burning and you just start stomping on it with your foot and you don't pour water over it and to contain it, if you just stomp on it and beat it, those little faggots and embers will branch out 
and catch other things on fire. And you'll have more fires than you know what to do with. And so what happens in Jerusalem is the early church is persecuted. So they move to Samaria, other parts of Judea, Antioch, and throughout the Roman Empire. And they begin to burn more brightly. And so it was with every period of church history, as outside forces went in to quench it, they only grew. In persecution, this is what happens. When Christians are given a hard time, as difficult as it is for the Christians, a separation takes place. Christians begin to live holy lives. They say, wait a minute, the only way I'm going to survive this is to be right with God and walk in fellowship with Him. And there's a separation of the chaff and the wheat. Those who are Klingons, they're not really Christians. They've made a profession without a practice will fall by the wayside. Oh, they'll be there when there's the Gulf War and other tragic events happen, but when the real rubber meets the road and persecution occurs, you'll see the chaff fall by the wayside, which is only good for the wheat. The true Christians will be, re remain stronger. The mixed multitude won't be there. That is why I have a real problem with a seeker-sensitive or user-friendly approach of building churches. Now what I'm speaking about is a new methodology that has taken place. There's sort of a new wave in growing churches around the country. There's seminars about them all the time. And the idea is don't mention Jesus too much. Don't get too heavy on the God stuff. You, know, you quote a few Bible verses, but you even sing some secular songs and get the unbeliever feeling really comfortable. It's a user-friendly church. You want to be sensitive to the seeker without preaching the gospel. It's always dangerous to entertain the goats rather than to feed the sheep. Because you want to have strong sheep. And the Lord will add daily those who should be saved. But I say maintain a strong approach and people want to be leveled with. People want the truth of the Bible, full strength. I think that people are up for the task of being challenged. And so instead of watering it down, just full strength. And in a persecution, it's interesting, John MacArthur has said in times past over and over again, he says, the one thing I am praying for is persecution in the modern church. He says, I know if we are persecuted in this country that we will only become stronger. Boy, that's a new twist. Praying for persecution, can you imagine that? When is the last time you prayed for persecution? I can't remember when I did. Yet at the same time, I acknowledge that every time the church was persecuted, God's people only grew and multiplied. Affliction brings growth. Tribulation works patience, it says in Romans. So they made their lives hard, but they grew. Now it says the king of Egypt, verse 15, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, which means beauty or beautiful, and the other, puah, which means splendor. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. Let's see what these midwives do. But the midwives feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the male children alive. Now here we have a precedent for us. Way back in Egypt, it was legally acceptable to kill infants. 
as it is becoming more and more acceptable to do so. Obviously, abortion is something that is hotly debated, but it's becoming acceptable to abort babies. But there were a couple women who believed in the sanctity of human life and did not care what Pharaoh or anybody else said. They cared what God said. Though I don't re uh, read of them taking placards, they stood up for the sanctity of life. They would not participate. They did not care about the visible king. They cared about the invisible God whom they served and to whom one day they would give an account. And so they lived in the light of eternity. They had an eternal perspective. And they stood up for it, even though it was legally acceptable. So the midwives, fear God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called from the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? But the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively. They give birth before the midwives come to them. Now Egypt, well, it was an interesting country in that the Nile River, which began, begins, I say began, still begins, the headwaters uh, waters are in Lake Victoria, wind their way through Africa and go north into that delta as they empty out into the ocean. And it forms uh, bringing all that silt through Africa, depositing it in Egypt. It's a very fertile place. And Egypt had gotten to a place where they were really soft. It was so easy to grow crops. They didn't have to work with rigor like the children of Israel did. That affliction made them lively people. The softer you become in society, oftentimes the more problems you have. Of course, we have the temptation, even us being Christians in this society, becoming just sort of soft and fitting in with this society and, and uh, becoming spiritually flabby. Now, the children of Israel, because they were afflicted, and they were in much better shape than the Egyptians, they'd have their children quickly. Uh, I've been to countries where they don't have birthing centers like America. They don't have... Uh, uh, many of the um, long labors like we do in uh, countries I've been in, they go out to the fields and the women squat down and they'll take a midwife with them or do it alone. They'll have their babies cut the cord and bring the child back. Now, at this point, because of the slave labor, these gals were lively. Before the midwives could come in, baby was born. They'd go out, they know it was time, they'd have their children, and they'd get back to it. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. Therefore, God dwelt, or dealt, I already read that. And so it was, because, verse 21, no, I already read that too, verse 22. It's been a long day. So Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now, before we move into chapter 2, we get some interesting insight into the work of Satan. Doesn't the Bible say we're not ignorant of his devices? Now, I'm going to give to you a premise. I'm going to follow a line of thinking throughout the Bible real briefly, quickly. If God's plan to deliver the world from sin through the Messiah, depended on the existence of a nation and the maintenance, the continuation of that nation. 
if you could exterminate that nation, that group of people from off the face of the earth, you could avert and thwart God's plan. That's a heavy premise. If the existence of a group of people was necessary to bring forth the Messiah, which it was, if you could exterminate that group of people, you would have thwarted God's plan. Now, that's a heavy premise. I could sort of contrast that with saying, if you exterminated, God forbid, every UCLA graduate, every person who graduated from University of Southern California, if you could exterminate everyone, as tragic as that would be, you would not thwart the overall worldwide plan of God. But if you could exterminate the seed of Israel that God said and promised through whom the Messiah would come, if you could exterminate that in its roots, you will have averted or thwarted God's plan. Way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3, God reveals that through the seed of a woman, the deliverer will come who will be born and crush the domain of Satan. Ever since that edict went out, Satan was on his guard. Hmm, my head's going to get crushed, huh? Got a counterattack. And the first counterattack we read is also in the book of Genesis, when the attempt to get at the seed was Cain killing his brother Abel. Perhaps Abel will be that seed. Of course, Seth becomes the godly seed. But I believe it's an attempt at what Barnhouse calls the invisible war. That underneath history we see a satanic attack and counterattack going on to get at Israel. Here's my basic point. Though all prejudice of any kind is sinful, anti-Semitism has at its roots demonism, has a satanic plot, because the Messiah would come through the Jews. And so every time there's a revelation that God's going to work through this people group, here comes a way to avert the seed of the woman being born in history. First was Cain and Abel. Here's another example here in the book of Exodus. Kill all of the male Hebrews. It's more than just Pharaoh's ego trip. I believe he was inspired satanically to exterminate the race of the Jews so that the Messiah couldn't come. Then, as history goes on, a certain lineage is set aside, a certain household is set aside, promises are made that through the line of Judah, the household of David, that David would become the king even when he was a child, promises are made to him, and we see a counterattack by the devil. Saul seeks to put out his lights by figuratively by throwing a spear at him and killing him. He chases him for ten years through the wilderness of Ziph and Paran and Engedi to hunt his life, but all the while, behind the scenes, it's Satan trying to get out the holy seed because as more information gets out as to where this seed is coming from, what lineage, what house, what tribe, there's a counterattack. It's that way in any strategy of warfare. If we heard tonight that uh, Iraq, let's say, or Iraq and Iran were going to attack the United States, where do you put your troops? Where do you put your defenses? The United States is a big place. But as information gets leaked out, we counterattack. We hear hours later it'll be on the West Coast. We hear hours later it's going to be in Northern California. And so we can start our counterattack based upon the information that we receive. As Satan sees the plan of God unfolding, we see a counterattack to exterminate the seed of Israel to get at the Messiah. 
that puts a whole comp different complexion on biblical history. You start seeing it differently. Now this continues, and I could cite many examples. One notable example is a man by the name of Jeconiah, who is of the lineage of David, the line of Judah, the royal kingly line that God promised the Messiah would come through. Jeconiah, however, blows it so badly, sins so grievously, that God pronounces a curse on his bloodline and posterity, which poses a real problem for God. Here is the prophecy in Jeremiah 22. Write this man down as childless, speaking of Jeconiah, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah anymore. Now, the very bloodline, the royal line of the promises that the Messiah will sit upon the throne of David, the bloodline has been cursed. The royal line of David has been cursed, the kingly line, because of Jeconiah's sin. Which means we have a problem. How does God get around that curse? By having Jesus born of a virgin. Now listen carefully. Joseph was of the household of David, and you can trace his lineage, his genealogy, back through history, through Jeconiah, all the way up through Solomon to David. Mary has a genealogy. She's also in the household of David. And her genealogy goes back, but not through the royal line, though the bloodline of David is hers, but her genealogy is traced back to David through Nathan around Solomon. That royal house is escaped altogether. Which means, if Jesus would have been born physically of Joseph, he could not fulfill the predictions and the qualifications of being in the royal line of David. Joseph was his foster father, not his real father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He was virgin born, which gave him, having Joseph as his foster father, the legal right to the throne without the blood curse, because the bloodline was through Mary all the way back to David. That's why there are two genealogies, one in Matthew, one in Luke. God cursed the sin of Jeconiah. The bloodline was cursed. God got around his curse knowing that his son would be born of a virgin. I can see hell just going, all right, the bloodline has been cursed. Fine print, not revealed yet. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. Thus Jesus fulfills the qualifications legally and escapes the blood curse being born of a virgin. So this continues, this activity of Satan, all the way to the New Testament, when a guy by the name of Herod the Great, a short little guy with a short man's complex and a big ego, decides to kill any competitor to the throne, and all of the males in Bethlehem, two years and under, are to be exterminated. Again, a satanic plot to get at the royal seat. I also think, personally, that this sheds some new light on the Holocaust. Because... I believe that God is not finished with the Jews. Though the Messiah has come, as prophesied, God still has a plan to keep this race together, to inhabit their land once again, as we saw May 14, 1948, and inhabiting the land, to be gathered in the land, to have the enemies of Israel come. Jesus Christ will come during the Battle of Armageddon, interrupting it really, bringing in a new kingdom, and ruling geographically from Mount Zion with the Jews, 144,000 of them specifically. Knowing that God still has a plan for the Jewish nation, Satan's attack has always been against these people. So though all prejudice is wrong, anti-Semitism has a different shade and a different complexion to it.
Okay? Now we get to the deliverer. And this thing keeps banging. Let me just get rid of it. And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. This is the old story of man meets woman, falls in love, and love and has a child. And it's little Moses. They haven't given him the name yet. But what I like about this is that this is Moses giving his own history. And he's writing about his mom and dad. What's interesting is he doesn't mention their names yet. You know, most of us, if we're writing about our parents, we're going to give details, who they were, what they were like, what their dating thing was like. He just mentions them. Doesn't even mention that their names are Amram and Jochebed. We'll get that in chapter 6. But they were of the tribe of Levi. They were commoners. They were slaves. It says... When she saw that he was a beautiful child, there's an apocryphal source that tells us that Moses was so beautiful a person, so striking an individual, that when he was grown up and he walked down the streets of Egypt, the crowds would stop and stare at him. How true that is, we don't know, but Scripture does say he was a person of marked beauty physically. When she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now God blessed this little child with a good set of lungs. You could only hide a baby for so long. Pretty soon that baby's cry gets loud, and obviously Moses had a, quite a projection ability with his lungs. It was dangerous now for Jochebed and Amram to hide their little son. What would happen if a soldier would come by and hear a scream? It would be instant death for that child. And so they decided, according to Hebrews 11, to take a step of faith. And they made a little boat. And they put, can you imagine what it would be like to put your baby in a little papyrus ship sealed with tar and letting it float down the river? Now, my parents would have liked to have done that to me when I got a little older. And I hassled them when I was at home, but for a parent to release their baby down the river. I know parents that won't even release their babies to the nursery. They don't have enough faith to even put them in the nursery. Moses' parents had enough faith to put it downstream. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it. Now, people bathed publicly in the Nile River. It was considered a sacred river, sort of like the Ganges to those in India today. Uh, They were very superstitious. As we get into this book, you're going to see that they believed in many gods. They were polytheistic. And we'll give you a list of who those gods were. And you'll see that the plagues in Egypt was actually God judging the idolatry of the Egyptians. They worshipped frogs. You like frogs? Fine. I'll give you so many frogs that when you open up your ovens, they'll be there. Oh, you like flies? Fine. And you you worship the Nile River? Let's have it turn blood. Every single thing they worshipped principally as the principal gods God judged. By the way, God never forgets The edict of Pharaoh to kill the firstborn males of Israel. And the tenth plague is a counteraction of Pharaoh's edict 
Because the 10th plague of Egypt is where the death angel comes through and every male child, every firstborn male child, every firstborn period, is killed by this death angel when the blood is not applied to the household as a counteraction, really, of uh, the edict of Pharaoh from the beginning. So they're out there. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing herself. Uh, There's an old saying that said, Ten sorceries were put out into the world. Nine of them ended in Egypt, and one landed in the rest of the world. Meaning that Egypt was so superstitious, they believed in so many different things. Uh, Very much like India today, having, I think, 600 million gods, uh, they believe in in India, they ran out of uh, ability to count them. But they were so superstitious, and part of the judgment is against that idolatry. And so, when she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now we see a little bit of uh, this providence coming together. God's plan to deliver the children of Israel starts to develop in the next several verses. First of all, God puts together that which is natural, a woman's heart and a baby's cry. That little baby was irresistible. I can just picture God pinching little Moses at just the right time. And he yelps out. And Pharaoh's daughter hears it go, oh, look at that cute little baby, so beautiful. So, well, that's one of the Hebrews' children. Let's look at how the plan developed. She had compassion on him. His sister, that is Moses' sister, who's part of this whole episode, said to Pharaoh, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse the child for you? So Pharaoh's daughter said, go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, just like God to do something like that. Knowing that her son could be killed, she puts that baby in a basket, sends it downstream, only to be picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, who has compassion on that child. And Moses' sister Miriam says, Hey, it's a Hebrew child. You you want me to get a Hebrew mother to nurse it? Just so happens I know one. Moses' mother is able to come back into his life to raise that child in the early years, giving him a godly heritage, a sense of his own history, and she gets paid for it. That's awesome. The Egyptians foot the bill. It's government subsidized all the way. The tax dollars of the Egyptians at work. I love it. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now the adoption takes place. So she called his name Moshe in Hebrew, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Moses means to draw out. And so they called him Moshe, Moses, because I have drawn him out of the water. Josephus tells us that there was a problem that the Pharaoh, Thumos III, had at this time. His problem is that he had all daughters, no sons. And the way kingdoms worked in those days was by the principle of dynastic succession. A dynasty was in place, the 18th in this case, and uh, you weren't voted in as Pharaoh. There weren't Republicans and Democrats, and it was simply whoever was king and took over with his army, his son became Pharaoh and his son after him. He didn't have any sons. He had daughters. 
And Josephus tells us that made Moses in line to become the Pharaoh, the next Pharaoh of Egypt. He was trained in all of the wisdom, Stephen says, of the Egyptians for 40 years. Now, as we said a few Sundays ago, you could divide Moses' life up into three sets of 40. For 40 years, he was raised and schooled with the best Egypt had to offer. He probably went to the Temple of Ra, the Temple of the Sun, which is like the ancient Harvard, Harvard University of Egypt. Uh, by the way, these were not dummies 3,500 years ago. 3,500 years ago, the Egyptians were the first ones to postulate the idea that the earth was round and not flat, which even predates some of the modern scientific investigations. And uh, they were the ones that guessed that the distance from the earth to the sun was 93 million miles. They're pretty accurate. That's what it is. They came up also with the science of embalming the dead, second to none. I'm sure that even to this day that funeral directors would love to have their secrets. I was in the British Museum. And as I went through the British Museum and saw the Egyptian exhibit, I was absolutely blown away when I saw with my own eyes the casket, and inside the casket was one of the pharaohs, some have suggested even the very pharaoh to whom Moses said, let my people go, in the British Museum, with all of his skin intact, hair on his head in places intact, still preserved to this day. Besides that, they had their chemistry down. Um, they came up with dyes and paints that have lasted for thousands of years. If you ever go to Egypt and go to uh, Giza or the Temple of the Kings down south in the museum and you see some of the frescoes, brilliant colors still preserved. You know, we have to paint our houses every couple of years. The paint flakes off. We're now coming to the problem of painting this roof of this big building, which is going to cost a lot of money. You know, wish the Egyptians could paint it. Go come back in 4,000 years and you'd still see it. They had an incredible way with chemistry and dyes. And uh, here was Moses raised in the best, being in the court of Pharaoh, the best that Egypt had to offer. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now something has happened in between verses 10 and 11. A decision has occurred. And the decision is given to us by the author of Hebrews. Sort of a commentary for Jewish Christians in the early church. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith... Moses, when he became of age, literally megas ganomenos, which means he became someone great after 40 years of training, by faith when Moses became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproaches of Christ of greater treasures than all the riches in Egypt. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the king. But he looked to him who is invisible. Now he made a choice that he would identify with the Hebrews, become their deliverer. Somehow God revealed that to him. Perhaps his Hebrew upbringing with his mother came into view. He saw the slavery. 
He said, man, all of this, being the next Pharaoh, having all of this uh, wealth and all these bucks, it's not enough. I want to be used by God. I know it's a tough choice, but he went in one day and he said, Mom, as much as I love you and I love Grandpa, I quit. Here's my resignation. I'm not going to be called your son anymore. I know that I'm a Hebrew, and I know that God has a plan for my life, and so I want to be identified with them. I'm not going to be your son any longer. Problem. He was trained in the flesh. And all he knew was force, getting things done. So he sees somebody afflicting one another, and he sees the Egyptian beating Hebrew, he kills the Egyptian. That's what he knows. He falls back on the flesh, his training. He's not trained spiritually yet. It would take a lot more force than killing one Egyptian to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. It would take God's strength. So God has to train him. So what does God do? Takes him to the desert for 40 years. He lands in Midian. He gets married, he has children, and he raises sheep in the middle of the desert. From Egypt to poverty. But God has something in store for him. It's called education. Some of the best education you can get is where God humbles you, causes you to fail, causes you to be humble and to depend on him. That's what Moses needed. God gave him a BSD degree. He already had a PhD in Egypt. God needed to give him a BSD degree, backside of the desert, where he would learn to depend on God, where he would learn to be humble instead of trying to do something of God in the energy of his flesh. So he sits down. In verse 15, Pharaoh heard this matter. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, also called Jethro, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And he said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, where is he? And why is it that you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Now Moses becomes a type of Jesus Christ. Even as Moses predicted, another prophet will come like unto me, him you shall listen to. Stephen sees the fulfillment of that prediction in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 7. You can read it tonight or on your own. There's a beautiful illustration of that here in this verse. Moses is rejected by his countrymen and leaves for a time getting a Gentile bride and after getting the Gentile bride will return 40 years later to deliver the children of Israel by God's hand through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. Even as Jesus Christ, being rejected by the Jews, he came into his own, his own received him not, he has turned to the Gentiles and is drawing out a bride for himself, the church. And when that is completed, he will turn once again to the Jewish people during the tribulation period, do a work among them, and be their deliverer once again. And then at the end of that period, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, as we read in Zechariah. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. 
The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came to God because of the bondage. And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. Know this, the bondage that they faced in Egypt did not take God by surprise. God was not impotent. God was not removed. God knew what was happening. In fact, back in Genesis chapter 15, I think it's verse 13 and 14, God says, Abraham, you're the one that I'm going to fulfill my promise through. You're going to have a son. But as the generations go on, your posterity will be in another country for 400 years, and they will be oppressed. And after that time, I will come, and I will deliver them. It was all predicted. So God hears their groanings. God remembers the covenant. God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now, we've just covered two chapters. At this point, Moses is 80 years old. For 40 years, he tried to be something really great. God took him for 40 years to the desert and showed him he was nothing. That it took more to deliver and to work spiritually than all of the education that he could get from a worldly standpoint. Now God is about to show Moses that he can take nothing and make something out of him. So much so that he doesn't even want to go. In chapter 3, chapter 4, there's a series of excuses. I can't go. I can't talk. Wait a minute. You yelled a lot when you were a kid. You had a good set of lungs. You were raised in the best schools of Egypt. Oh, but I can't talk. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I'm not eloquent. He'd been humbled being out there in the desert with those sheep day after day. But now he was ready. At 80 years old, he was ready to be used by God. You know, it's never too late for God to use you. It's better if God can get you while you're young. And the rest of your life will be spent in service to Jesus Christ. But God will take anyone at any age and work through them and use them. Life was just beginning for Moses at 80 years of, old, of age. He's going to now be used mightily by God. There's a scripture that I read this week that I wanted to sort of close with. Would you turn with me to Psalm 39? I think it fits perfectly with what we just covered. Verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I might know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches, and he does not know he will gather them. And now, O Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. I just thought about that, and I thought about Moses. At 80 years of age, God takes him and works with him and uses him to deliver the children of Israel, to do a mighty work. Whatever your age is tonight, some of you have gone through the gradient stages of life and you're in your latter years, God still wants to use you. If you're a young person, God has his hand or wants to have his hand in your life and use you. Your life will never be wasted if you spend it for something that outlasts it. If your focus turns off of yourself and building your own kingdom and you say, whatever time I have left, I'm going to go for broke and serve the Lord. 
share the gospel, make my life count for something, it will never be spent in vain. You will never be sorry. You'll be able to look back over your life like Paul and said, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. My life is poured out as a drink offering. And now there's light up for me in heaven, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only me, but also all those who love his appearing. And so the admonition for us to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God has a work for you to do. Discover what it is. Find out what it is. Find out what God's gifts are to you, what he has equipped you to do. And then say, Lord, I present myself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Go for it. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer tonight. That we would invest our lives, that we would spend our lives for something that will outlast them. That we will go through this life, as Jesus said, not loving our lives, but loving you. For you said, whoever tries to save his life would lose it. But whoever would lose his life for your sake would find it. Lord, we want to maintain the attitude the apostle had to spend and to be spent. And so use us, make our lives count. In Jesus' name, amen.